Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Simply Scary Podcast, Season 1, Episode 11. I am your Master of Ceremonies, G.M. Danielson. When we think of horror, we may imagine the immediate dangers of being stalked by a malicious predator, getting lost with no hope of return, painfully tragic accidents and injuries, or some other life-threatening situation. But what of the people who are left behind long after the monster does its work, or when the nightmare is finally over? What horrors await them? Will they be next to meet with foul circumstances? Or will something far worse befall them? Something perhaps like a long, lonely life missing someone dear to them? Whatever the answer, the partings of these stories will certainly be 
such sweet sorrow. Don't go away, because the first of three stories for this episode will begin right after this short message. Welcome back, listener. Now it is time for the first of our three stories that are all about saying goodbye. Our first story is about a man whose small-town world changes when he moves into the big city, an existence devoid of the sounds of home. When growing up, he had what appeared to him to be a minor incident that filled him with an uneasy sense of dread. This incident should have served as a lesson about the fragility of life, but what seemed like a small event from childhood will soon unfold tragedy in horrific ways that will not be so easily forgotten. Pendleton Arkwright performs T.K. Markambi's Cricket. I'm just a regular sort of guy. I grew up in a small Midwest town. Where doesn't really matter. They're all the same. Now I live in the city, and I couldn't be more content with my life. I mean, sure, I've got my problems. My boss is merciless, and Dave keeps taking my yogurt out of the fridge in the break room. But I'm seeing a nice girl. One that's way out of my league. I make enough money to do what I want on the weekends and to take Molly out once in a while. It's a good life. Wasn't always good. We were dirt poor when I was growing up. Not digging in a trash heap poor, but welfare poor. Mama got food stamps and Daddy sold some of them to go to the bar. But we ate. We had clean clothes and shoes on our feet and a roof over our heads which is more than some have. But we were poor, and it was a little town. The thing about small towns is they're old. Old people, old money, old families and old houses. Even the nice places in the center of town had their mice and roaches. Flies in the summertime like you've never seen. And crickets. We all had crickets. Indoors or out, you'd hear them. Night and day, chirping away. Chirp, chirp, chirp. You don't notice them, usually. You go about your day, mostly in silence, with only that chirp to keep you company, and you don't even know it's there. Until it isn't. When the crickets are silent, you know something's going to happen. There might be a storm coming, or a fire out in the field. Once we had wolves make it into town, and the crickets were silent then. A couple of guys went after them with shotguns. Wolves might be pretty, but they can destroy a town. They kill the livestock. Daddy was with the man and brought me home a wolf tail to hang on my wall. Anyways, the crickets were always there, and you never bothered them, and they never bothered you. Mama said they were good luck. 
told us over in Japan they'd keep crickets in cages, and the more you had, the richer you was. Maybe she was right. But one day I was sweeping in the kitchen, and this big old black cricket jumps out of me. I'd never stopped to look at one up close. Ugly, alien-looking things. This one jumped and landed on the broom and stared at me. I stared back for a minute, then got a fear like I ain't never felt before. It was instinct. Whatever that primal revulsion is that mankind has for things that crawl on six legs. Pure instinct. It took hold of my hands and made me start whacking that cricket. The bug hopped around, evading my blows for a good long while. I kept swinging and missing and swinging again. Finally, I hit him. I couldn't have been more than about eight years old. I was curious. I knelt down and stared at the cricket, and I swear it stared right back. thing looked through my eyes, straight into my soul, and branded me a murderer before it died. I stood there a minute, frozen, before screaming for Mama and running through the house to climb up on the sofa. Mama came running, too, and calmed me down enough to find out what happened. She looked at the cricket all sorrowful and told me that'd be bad luck. Then she whipped me for killing it. It seemed real important at the time, but nothing ever came of it. That was long ago and far away. I wouldn't have even remembered it. There's no crickets in the city. At night, there's cars buzzing back and forth and horns honking all night. Every once in a while, a train rumbles past. People shout, and silence doesn't warn of danger. A siren does. They test it every Thursday, and it blasts through the city, drowning out everything else for a few minutes. Makes you feel safe when you bother to notice it. The siren is working, all is well. A couple weeks ago, though, I was sitting in the living room, browsing videos on YouTube when the phone rings. My girlfriend's calling me up, fussing about her smoke detectors, and I go over to check it out. I know as soon as I walk in, it ain't the smoke detector. Oh, it's a similar sound, and I suppose if you've only ever heard one, you wouldn't know the difference. But I know them both, and I could tell. Only one thing in the world makes a sound exactly like that. Cricket, I say, and my girl, she looks at me like I lost my mind. It takes a while to convince her. I gotta go through all the motions of checking each smoke detector, changing batteries and pushing buttons to show her they're working. And then I start moving things around, shifting furniture, looking for the bug. The thing about a cricket chirping is the sound echoes. It comes from everywhere and nowhere all at once. The sound is its camouflage. About three hours later, I still hadn't found it. Well, I can't stay here, Molly says. I laugh at her, just a little. I don't mean to, it just comes out. It's just a cricket, I tell her. They're good luck. She don't appreciate being laughed at, and I know I'm in trouble. She's not yelling yet, though. She's too scared. 
What if he jumps on me while I'm sleeping? Then it just jumps on you, Molly. They don't bite. She glares at me. I sigh and I help her pack an overnight bag and I take her home with me. When we get to my place, I call up the exterminator. And nothing much else happened that night. We made love, woke up, had breakfast, and Molly lectured me for laughing at her. We stopped by her place on the way to work, and the cricket was either gone or sleeping. She took her car and went to her job, and I went to mine. Love you, babe, she said as she pulled off. Me too, I said. A little afternoon, I got a phone call. Molly'd been in a car accident. She was in the hospital. I rushed out without a word and got there just as she passed. I wanted to join her, to die right along with her. Instead, I had to go and tell her parents. I'll save you all the heartache that went into the funeral and the beginning of the grieving process. I'll never get over losing Molly, but I don't expect you to know my pain or to share it with me. I just need to tell someone. Two days later, I'm over at my buddy Nate's house. He's trying to cheer me up, I can tell. I'm only half there, though, staring at the walls, wishing I could be with Molly again. Cheer up. Would you say? I asked Nate. I didn't say anything, man. Hey, do you want a beer? Nate walks into the kitchen without waiting for an answer. Cheer up. Comes again. Then it hits me. No one said cheer up. It's sure a cricket I jump up and start searching for it with that sort of frantic obsession you only know when you've lost the person you love most in the world Nate comes in and sees me flinging cushions and game controllers what the hell man cricket I say Nate's a good friend he doesn't ask any questions just starts looking with me trashing his house we never do find the cricket. Pretty soon Nate has to leave. Don't worry about it, he tells me. I try not to, but it's hard not to imagine it's the same cricket that terrified my Molly before she... before she died. Anyways, Nate goes to pick up his kid for their every other weekend trip to McDonald's and I go home to my empty apartment and the rest of my empty life. After a couple hours, the phone rings. Hello, I answer. Don't you hello me. Where is he? Hey, Shauna. Where's what now? You tell Nate to get on over here and pick up these baby kids. I got plans tonight. I pull back the phone and stare at it a second. Shauna, Nate left hours ago to get the kids. Sure he did, she says, and hangs up. They found Nate later that night. Drove off a bridge. Another funeral. At this point, my life is pretty much worthless. 
I don't even know if it makes sense to go on living. My mama comes up to sit with me a while. I don't remember much about what happened around that time. It's all in a sort of fog. But somehow her and daddy end up in a motel off of Lake Street, a few blocks from my place. Probably because there ain't hardly room for me in my little bitty apartment, much less two more. So mama and daddy are here and she keeps hovering over me. And daddy just stands and stares a lot. But they're family, and it helps. And eventually I feel like at least I'm still breathing. No matter how much it hurts. Daddy says they need to get home. What with it being almost time for spring planting and whatnot. Mama's on the phone packing when I hear it. Right through the receiver. Is that a cricket in your room, Ma? She's distracted, not really paying attention to me. Hmm? Oh, I guess so. I don't know. A sudden terror grips me. Mama, don't go, I say. I try to explain my fear, but even to me it sounds paranoid, and Mama think it's part of the grieving process. Why don't you come home with us? She offers, but I don't. On the way home, almost there, Mom and Daddy run smack into a semi, and the crash kills them both. I'm supposed to head down there today for the funeral. I have to go. They're my parents. But I'm afraid to leave the house. Last night it started, and it just won't stop. True. Sure. Sure. In case you didn't know, or if you are just a heartless, cold-blooded beast yourself, it's not wise to take the life of any creature for granted. It's best to err on the side of caution, because you never know what might be very unlucky to kill. And now that our opening act is well out of the way, it is time for our next journey. For this fretful expedition into where the darkness reaches, we visit a picturesque little hamlet Despite the generally benign atmosphere and beautiful scenery, it is a town that lives under the veil of a sinister mystery. What is happening to the town's children? Mary Noggle performs Maxwell Malone's The Children of Peculiar. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Peculiar is green as envy in summer. You can see the old water tower from the highway if you pass through. Flanked by red brick buildings, its name black and blocky on its face. If it's warm out, which it always is, You'll see the townsfolk manicuring their lawns and hustling about the grocery outlet. On a Sunday, you'll catch them in their best, praising the good Lord and brunching afterward in the local diner. You might even smell the crackle of charcoal-grilled burgers. Feel the fizzle of Fourth of July that seems perpetually present in the air. But the one thing you won't ever see is a child. You won't see them, because there simply aren't any left. It all started with Ellie Mendoza. She was, by all accounts, a bright girl. She wasn't necessarily beautiful, but she had potential to be, and was pretty in the kind of way some young girls are. A brunette mass of unkempt curls a smattering of freckles, a certain gloss to her slender face with the right makeup applied. I'm sure the children had a list of names for her, but to many of the adults, such as myself, Ellie was the babysitter. She had retained a childish propriety that most other girls her age in the town had already begun to shrug off. Her braces and bookishness afforded her little popularity, to us they marked her as something special. Everyone knew that if Ellie was watching their children, no unwanted boyfriends would come round, no vodka bottles would be refilled with water upon return. In all honesty, Ellie's tendency to be more adult than the other teenage girls probably arose out of her parents' divorce, out of her mother moving to the East Coast and her father being left in shambles. From then on, Ellie was mother and daughter in the household. Ellie took care of herself. Ellie took care of our children. She went missing on a Tuesday. When Mr. Mendoza found the window in her room open, he did the only thing that made sense to him. He called the police. From what the rest of us gathered, they came, took a statement, but expressed that maybe, just maybe, Ellie was off somewhere with friends. But Mr. Mendoza knew his daughter would never sneak out. Mr. Mendoza knew that something was wrong. All of us did. Ellie never came back. Two weeks passed, and by then every telephone pole storefront and bulletin board around town had her face plastered on them. The police had questioned almost all the children in her class. They had questioned her teachers. 
had even questioned many of us parents who had employed her, going so far as to request conversations with our children. Of course, I let my son Austin speak to them, though I doubt he was much help. At eight, he was still more interested in Superman and Adventure Time, not the whereabouts or plans of the babysitter he always swore he didn't need anymore. But I let the police speak their piece to him nonetheless, if not for the thought of poor Mr. Mendoza. Many of us parents, worried as we were, began to take precautions. They were by no means strict. As terrible as it may sound, disappearances like this do happen, and while it was a horror to see it occur so close to home, we did what made the most sense. We reaffirmed our beliefs that our children were steering clear of strangers. We made them vow to talk only to adults that they knew and trusted, to be careful, and to always watch out for each other. We parents filled each other in with phone calls and meetings. And the police? They kept on looking for Ellie. They released a statement not long after that they believed that the ex-Mrs. Mendoza had kidnapped her daughter. Although she had been afforded no custody rights, she had expressed a strong desire for them, as most of us already knew. Many of us townsfolk had borne witness to poor Mr. Mendoza's simultaneous attempts to not demonize the mother of his daughter, while still trying to fend her off and keep Ellie safe. We had supported him. Most all folk in Peculiar were given to treating each other like family after all. When they had reached out to inform Ellie's mother of her disappearance, they had discovered instead that she too had disappeared. And so it seemed, logically speaking, that it was the most hopeful and realistic conclusion to come to. Mr. Mendoza refused to believe it, and the police promised to keep looking with the same fervor they would afford any other kidnapping. But the rest of us only offered quiet consolations behind closed doors. That was, of course, until other children began to disappear. Next, it was Sandy Whitaker's son, Donald. Then it was Sandifer and Jen and Milo. The town, struggling to return to some sense of quiet normality, was thrown once again into chaos. The police issued another statement as soon as they possibly could. This time, they expressed absolute unknowingness in the cause of the disappearances, but they shared the details of each case in the hopes that it would help others protect their children. They said that the children disappeared in the night. They said that the families had heard nothing. But most importantly, they said that there had been open windows. At each scene, an open window. Despite what you may think, peculiar things happen rarely in peculiar. News travels quickly in quaint and quiet towns. Lies do not linger. Conspiracies do not fester. And most of all, children do not go missing. But on the day of the second police statement, something peculiar did happen in peculiar, 
and it took the form of an entire town's worth of people flocking into the only hardware store around. It didn't matter the type of lock. Bolts, padlocks, even chains were all sold out. By the end of the day, the windows, usually inviting of a breeze for the sweltering southern heat, were all closed. Those who had come too late resorted to boards or pictures or whatever else would work. And Lowell, the proprietor of Lowell's Hardware and Childless himself, was in most probability a new millionaire. But worse than the heat trapped in the homes, worse than the caging of one's own family and cutting out the rest of the world, was the creeping fear that someone, somewhere amongst us, knew what was becoming of the children. Someone, or many someones, were stealing the children of Peculiar right beneath our noses. The next few weeks were strained. Many of the parents gathered in the school gymnasium for a sort of kangaroo court. And there we decided to instate a city curfew. All children were to be home before the sky grew dark and were urged to tell their parents wherever they were, whenever they were there. The police, agreeable to this given the circumstances, enforced the curfew as best they could with the minimal amount of manpower they had. And while safety was still unsure, there was a period of time where all seemed to be fine. But it wasn't fine. It never was. And eventually, children went missing again. This time, nearly 15 disappeared overnight. Twelve sets of parents awoke to empty beds and open windows. Some called the police, some wailed in the streets, and others began to blame those whose children had yet to go missing. The police were now in far beyond their pay grade and called on the state and the surrounding police departments for help. Shoal Elementary and most of the other surrounding schools were closed until further notice, despite the school year having only recently started. Phones rang at all hours. People sought solace in the churches or the community center, or with other families in whom they trusted. Others moved, fearing peculiar to be a hunting ground for human traffickers. Overnight, the playgrounds were emptied, and the streets fell silent, and trust began to dwindle. My husband and I remained in our own home. At dinner, Austin pushed his mac and cheese around on his plate. Each glance my husband and I cast toward him was met for only a second. Buddy, you know we would never let anything happen to you, right? My husband stared down at his plate, saw on his steak with knife and fork. Austin almost winced. He grumbled a, mm-hmm. Now we know things are scary right now, but your mother and I promise that you'll be okay. Besides, it must be pretty nice to get some time off school, hey? Their eyes met again and my husband smiled. 
Yeah, Austin chimed. But I don't want to go back if Tony and Mark are really gone. I don't want to go back at all. I glanced at my husband. Tony Walczak and Mark Kaczynski were two boys who had disappeared from the neighborhood in the most recent kidnapping. We had, of course, known this to be the case. After all, we had had their parents over for football games and cookouts, more than a handful of times, and had spoken to them since the disappearances. But we had never mentioned a word of it to Austin. He had asked to see them a handful of times, but we had simply explained that their parents were concerned for them just as much as we were for him. I silently wondered how perceptive my son really was of the situation at hand. Who told you Tony and Mark are gone? My husband asked, setting his silverware on his plate. No one, said Austin. He set his silverware down too, and his hands fell into his lap. Well then, what makes you think they are? Austin shrugged. I don't know. I can just feel it, I guess. We were quiet. The chirrup of cicadas outside beat rhythmically, far off and dreamy sounding beyond the boards and the blinds. Can I be excused? I looked to my husband, but he didn't raise his eyes from his plate. I nodded. Then I rose and collected the dishes. Just as I suppose everyone else did, we watched the local news at all times. The phone calls had lessened in numbers since the advent of the disappearances, but they were still common. We did our best to console our friends and neighbors, the people we'd grown up with and now were missing children of their own, the people who had once been children of Peculiar, just like us. But mostly, we stayed indoors, and we made work fit where it could, and we were careful. There are times in life, though, where it doesn't matter how careful you are. Some things are written in stone, are unavoidable, are fated to happen. And the worst part of it all is you will know when it is coming. You'll feel its pull somewhere in the pit of your stomach. You can kick and you can fight and you can rail to the high heavens like an animal caught in a trap. But there is no saving grace. No moving out of the way. You are cemented in destiny's path as it barrels towards you, snarling and fanged, and all you can do is watch. For me, that's what losing Austin felt like. I could feel it in the air that Sunday morning. I had stayed up to watch the news, to wait for my husband to get home from the night shift at the gas station. But where usually I would doze in the armchair by the television, there was an electricity that had kept me awake. More than once, I had climbed the creaking stair to the second floor and peeked through the door to Austin's room. I'd seen his face, nestled in a crook of sheets and pillow. But each time I had looked, I had felt the weight growing heavier in my chest. No matter how long I looked, it wouldn't leave. It was almost 4 a.m. when I heard the door creak. I knew it could be any manner of reason. He couldn't sleep. God knew it was hot enough. Or he had to go to the bathroom. But my mind wouldn't let it be. 
I wrapped my robe around my body, pulled myself from the chair, and moved towards the stairs. The flickering television casting a silhouetted double against the wall. I saw Austin moving, slowly, quietly, from his darkened room. Hey, baby, can't sleep? There was no response. He disappeared. Austin? I moved up the stairs, the wood cool against the soles of my feet. Honey? I rounded the corner and there he was, still walking, almost silently toward the end of the hall. The moon was swollen and wan beyond it, and the blue of night seeped through, stabbing into the shadows. For a moment it was calming. For a moment it was something from a storybook, something serene. But then, in a whisper of morning air, I saw the billow of curtains. I saw the lock on the floor. Austin, stop! I charged down the hall toward him. He was reaching the window now, splaying his fingers toward its sides, gripping them, pulling. I wrapped my arms around his waist and tore him backward. But my arm screamed with pain and my back caught suddenly, unable to complete its arch. Hands still clasped around him, I pulled again, throwing the full force of my body into it, feeling my feet stick to the hardwood as I pivoted to pitch him away from the window. But my hands, slick with sweat, slipped. Fingers disentangled and I heaved myself instead, away from my immovable son away from his unstoppable path. In a moment, he disappeared through the window and out onto the roof. I scrambled frantically to its edge, and in the same fluid movement as I'd watched him perform, I threw myself out onto the shingles. They glittered as their rough faces collected the moonlight and scraped against my skin. I pushed myself against the face of the house and climbed from my knees to my feet. There was my son, at the edge of the roof, pale limbs stretching from his t-shirt and shorts, sharp against the night that surrounded us. But beyond I saw another figure, and another, and another. Parrots hung from windows, circled in packs on lawns. Others struggled to climb to their roofs, and others, such as myself, stood begging their child to come back. But the children, they were silent. They stood stock still as the cool night's breeze licked past. Then, in one singular movement, they jumped. How do you describe the indescribable? How do you help someone believe in the unbelievable? How, in all that is good and holy and natural, do you convince someone of a sight they never could see? 
Are there words? Is there another language? One of the eyes or the body that can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that what another has said is God's honest truth. I don't think it's possible, but I'll try. The children of Peculia did not plummet from the eaves of their homes to the cement and dirt below. The children of Peculia did not crack against the pavement and spill their brains like brittle, beautiful little eggs. No. The children of Peculia jumped, and they kept going. They passed the moon in a swell, like bats in the dark, silhouetted against its ashen face. They shuttled upward, rigid, black on black, and then they disappeared into the murk, into the forever night that lay beyond. And we never heard from them again. Some part of us that remained dissolved into the darkness along with them that day. Peculiar, the quiet town, the quaint town, the town with a single hardware store, the town with a park of eastern redbuds that had been planted by hands that no longer exist, changed. And no matter how hard some of us tried, we changed with it. My husband saw the children from the gas station window. He didn't know at the time that our son, our Austin, was among them. But he had come immediately and assumed the worst. No amount of crying, no amount of fighting, no amount of loving could suture the tear that grew between us. And so he did what he had to do. My husband left, and I, I stayed. I spend my Sundays in the church, in the diner, listening to the townsfolk chatter on. I spend my weekdays working at the gas station, ringing up food and cigarettes and all manner of things for the traffic endlessly running to and from Harrisonville. I shop at the grocery outlet, and I cut my lawn and on occasion I even go to a cookout beneath the buttery southern sun with what few friends I have left. But every night, every night, I sit on my porch and I stare at the sky and I wonder what in all creation called the children of peculiar into the great abyss but perhaps, more importantly, I wonder why. Some of our more fanciful listeners may prefer to think that the children of Peculiar went to Neverland, where they will never grow up. <laughs> I'm afraid that only the never-growing-up part is true. After this brief message, 
we'll return with a story from one of the most memorable names in independent online horror today. And now, without further ado, it is time for our final story. In this tome, we meet two one-time school friends who have grown apart since the days at their alma mater. Always a target for teasing, the smallest of the friends, nicknamed Wasp, turns to a cutting-edge gym with a very effective exercise program, astonishing his former classmate. But as Wasp's fame becomes more and more immense, the situation seems a case study in too much of a good thing. Christopher Keegan performs Kevin Thomas's Meets. I saw my mate Ryan three weeks ago. For the first time in about five months. First time since I'd been thrown out of that gym, with the rackets closing in on me. I nearly didn't recognise him on the crowded tube platform, with his grey hoodie over his head and his big black bomber jacket that strained at the seams with the bulk of the man underneath. He looked terrible. His veins and arteries were so dark that they looked like they'd been drawn on. His eyes were crusted with that yellow powder. So was his nose and the edges of his mouth. His ears seemed blocked with the stuff. More than that, though, his arms and chest were huge and solid, inhumanly so. What? Ryan? I croaked. Ryan's head turned towards me. His neck creaked like an antique rocking chair. His dusty, yellowed eyes seemed glazed until they lit up with a brief flicker of recognition. His mouth tried to crack into a smile, but his lips moved with the stiffness of a ventriloquist's dummy. You could almost say it was the first time I'd ever seen Ryan, because before that night, Ryan had always been Wasp, a nickname he'd earned when we were both about twelve and he barged into me running away from a wasp's nest he'd accidentally disturbed when climbing on his auntie's roof. Wasp was a good mate. Mostly. He was shy, and positively awful with girls. Our first fight was just after I started dating my first girlfriend, Laura, and he revealed that he'd long harboured a thing for her. In his eyes, I was stealing her from him. Honestly, had I known in advance that he liked her, would have backed off but he was acting like he was entitled to her just because he silently decided he liked her first. And that pissed me off enough to date her anyway. Not my finest hour, I admit. He wasn't bad looking, but he had a face that needed a good growth spurt to make handsome. He needed puberty to hurry and square out his chin and line it with some designer stubble. But it never did. See, when I was about 14... I went from five feet tall to six feet two and bulked out accordingly. Wasp, however, seemed to top out around five foot four. We used to rib him about it. 
and he used to laugh along. But I guess he took it more to heart than we thought. Because pretty soon he started pumping weights. To be honest, for every good mate instinct I had to try and convince him that he was fine just the way he was, he did genuinely seem happier when bulked up. Within a few months, you'd never see him without a protein shake in his hand. He ate chicken fillets like some people chew gum, and he always carried an issue of men's health or gym fitness in his bag. Don't get me wrong, we still thought he looked like a knob poured into that tight t-shirt with a neckline plunging so low you could nearly see his belly button, and we all delighted in telling him as such as often as possible. But it gave him confidence, and I guess that's all that mattered. I mentioned our first fight was over a girl, but so was our worst fight. The summer I turned 15, I heard that Wasp's little sister Robin fancied me. I know, I know, sisters are off limits, but I was young and stupid and hadn't really got a grasp of my hormones. The same genes that had missed Wasp had blessed his little sister with a petite figure and delicate features all set off with deep blue eyes and dirty blonde hair. (laughs) We got together at a party. And when Wasp found out, he was furious. He screamed at me, called me a bastard, and warned me to stay away from her. I'm not proud of what I said next. I know it was a low blow, but I was so angry that he told me off in front of everyone, I just lost my temper. Or what? I yelled in his face. What are you going to do, punch me in the shin? few big laughs from everyone. I felt awful. I spent the next few weeks all but begging for forgiveness and promising to leave Robin alone. One day during a wait session, I guess he gave in. He squared up to me, flexing his growing arms, and he said, If what you said the other day is true, all the worse for you, because if I can't punch you in the face, I'm going to deliver one hell of a smack to your bollocks. With that, A big grin spread across his face, and he punched me in the arm before going back to working out. (laughs) It seemed like the problems were all done. But then he joined Meats. See, when Wasp had got serious about bulking up, he started touring the local gyms. My family had a group membership to this fancy gym on an industrial site just off the motorway. It was huge with an indoor pool, an outdoor pool, tennis court, spa, sauna, the works. Even at a bar, cafe type place that always seemed far fuller than any part of the actual gym. I'd brought Wasp there once and he hated it. He couldn't understand why anyone would pay that much to spend 20 minutes on the cross ski and then two hours reading the Sunday papers once a month. Needless to say, when he found the gym he liked, it was a scuzzy, sweaty... Male-only, 24-hour type place. All strip lights and free weights and tattooed guys doing endless squats. Before Wasp got as heavily into it, we'd call the other guys there Wreckits, due to how much they looked like... (laughs) Well, I'm sure you can figure it out. It was a place called Meats, because in the grand tradition of male-only gyms, they had to pick a name that could double for a gay bar. It was a small, converted warehouse surrounded by barbed chain-link fence. Car park was a mix of dirt and rubble with potholes that never seemed to fully dry out. The main shutter was permanently down, and the gym's logo had been crudely spray-painted over it 
though it was now faded. The only usable entrance was a small side door, covered in chip blue paint, with a window that had wire crisscrossed through it. Security didn't appear to be a major concern for what was essentially a room full of men whose idea of a fun time involved picking up incredibly heavy things and then just sort of putting them down again. So Wasp started going to meets and carried on bulking up. But something changed when he started training there. After a few months, gone were the protein shakes and the chicken fillets and his macronutritional protein bars... Gone was the permanent bottle of water he carried around. I thought maybe he'd given up or reached his goal, but his bulking didn't seem to stop or even slow. If anything, it sped up. He let his subscription to men's fitness expire and stopped drinking green tea, but his muscles didn't stop growing. Even girls started to notice. They used to look at him with flirty intrigue, but this was slowly turning into puzzled concern. The amount of bulk was concerning enough, but it was the speed at which he bulked up that was more worrying. Now, don't get me wrong. We're still young, but still, this was happening on a scale of weeks, if not days. I mean, I swear I could see stretch marks around his biceps where his skin just couldn't keep up. I asked him how he kept bulking without all his supplements, and he grinned. The guys at meat sorted me out something new, was all he'd say. The breaking point came one day when Wasp fell down some stairs. It was nothing serious. He was too busy reading some news story about a suicidal man who jumped in front of a truck and just missed a step that sent him tumbling. He only fell a few feet, but the problem was how he landed. He put his hand out to break his fall, but his bag threw him off balance and he landed on the outside of his palm, wrenching his elbow the wrong way. The sound was wrong. I'm pretty squeamish about these kind of things. I can't hear someone being sick without heaving myself. And that fraction of a second sound clip of that guy's teeth on the curb in American History X makes my balls hide somewhere in my large intestine. So my face was sucking a lemon at the anticipation of the sickening, squelching, dull crack I was about to hear when Wasp's arm broke. But that wasn't what I heard. It was sharper and louder and stiffer than I expected. It sounded like tree bark snapping. Like a branch giving way when a kid tries to climb it. When I dared open my eyes, Wasp was just looking at his broken arm as it hung limply from its new bonus elbow. The break was bad enough, but the wound, it was bloodless. There was a good two-inch tear in the skin that should have been gushing with blood, but it just hung open, flapping like torn wrapping paper. A fine, yellowish powder dripped out onto the floor. I have to go, said Wasp, shoveling the spilt contents of his bag back inside. No, wait, I called. You have to go to the hospital. Then I saw it. I thought it was a pen at first, but no. It was a syringe, clear as day. Of course it was. How had it taken this long to figure that out? There's only one way he could have kept up the gains without all his powders and shakes. He was on steroids. 
That's what those chav wreckets had sorted out for him. Seriously, Wasp, come on. I tried to follow him, but he ran. I called him all afternoon and into the evening, but no answer. Eventually, I went round to his house, but Robin hadn't seen him. There was only one other place I could imagine he'd go. Meats. I pounded on the chip blue door. Membership number. Look, I'm not a member. I just need to know if Wasp... Uh, I mean, Ryan is here. Membership number. The racket behind the door mumbled again. I'm not a member. Is Ryan here? Membership number. Oh, hell, I don't know, 12? The door clicked open. As I said, security did not appear to be a major concern. I stormed past the wreckage working what passed for a front desk. In reality, it was just a fold-out table, topped with a wood-effect plastic. On it sat a spreadsheet on a clipboard and a small blue strongbox. <laughs> Quite the business empire. I carried on marching until I saw Wasp, bench-pressing some obscene amount of weight. Another towering wreckage behind him was a spotter. I stormed over, all ready to rip into him about steroids and abuse and getting his broken arm seen to. Wasp, what are you doing? Your arm. Stop calling me Wasp. My name's Ryan. What? Since when don't you like being called Wasp? I know why you call me it. Just because I'm small and annoying and pointless and I ruin everything, yeah? What? Of course not. That's, that's not the reason you damn well know it. Of course it is. And now you're just mad I'm getting bigger than you. Mate, when I met you, you were literally running away from wasps. How's it taking you this long to tell me you didn't like it? Yeah, whatever. It was this moment I realised all the other records had stopped working out and now we just sat on their equipment, watching our little domestic unfold. The room seemed bigger on the inside. The strip lights buzzed and beat down on the equipment, but the room's perimeter remained bathed in darkness. In those shadows, more of the wreckage swayed and watched. Look, Ryan, I'm sorry if you don't like the name. I won't use it anymore, I promise. I'm just worried about your arm. What about my arm? It's fine. Mate, I saw it snap. It was... By now, Ryan had sat up on his equipment and was leaning forward with his hands in his lap. His arm was fine, save for a particularly angry-looking stretch mark where the tear had been. How did... Why isn't it... See? I'm fine. I'll prove it. With that, he lay back down under the equipment. Put some more weight on! His spotter turned around and started fixing some more weights to the bar. I went to stop him, but wordlessly... Three of the wreckets who'd been silently watching stood up and took a step towards me. The spotter finished putting the extra mass on. Ryan wrapped his fingers around the scored metal, and I heard a faint creaking, as though a tree was blowing in a gust. He took a deep breath and lifted the bar off the holder. He slowly lowered it down towards his chest, and then, through gritted teeth, pushed the whole thing back up in locked arms. Repeat. Repeat, repeat. It seemed to be getting easier with each rep. After six or so, he started talking. See, mate, 
This is why you're here. You can't stand on becoming better than you. Repeat. No, Ryan, that's not it. Repeat. Yes, it is. I'm finally not small. Repeat. Or annoying. Repeat. Or pointless. Repeat. And you hate it. I heard a tearing sound. Like the first cut into a new piece of card. The angry red stretch mark near his bicep had ripped open again. That same weird yellow powder was falling out. Some of the other wreckets saw this too and took a step towards us. Ryan, please, you were never... Just leave. Go cry into my sister, you sonic butt. You don't want to see what comes next. Repeat. Ryan, stop. The tear widened. Leave. Repeat. Ryan, repeat. Go! The sound I heard next is imprinted on my mind forever. When I was seven, I spent the summer at my granddad's house. And he had this wide, fenceless front garden with a crabapple tree in the centre. I lost control of the football I'd been kicking about, and I followed it into the road without looking. There was a squeal of tyres and a blur of blue metal as a speeding car swerved onto the pavement and across my granddad's lawn straight into the tree. The sound was unforgettable. A deep, powerful splintering of wood. And Ryan's arm snapped too, just like the tree. Ryan's arm tore off at the bicep, and the weight came crashing down directly onto his chest. A tremendous cloud of light yellow powder pumped steadily out of his arm and engulfed him. I tried to rush forward and help, but two of the wreckets grabbed me and dragged me backwards towards the door. I reached out, screaming for Ryan, but more wreckets surrounded him, blocking him from view. The strip lights started shutting off. They threw me out of the door into a pothole full of oily water. I sprung up to get back in, but the door was already shut. The final lights inside went off. I stood there pounding on the door until it occurred to me to call the police. However, when they arrived and bust the door down, they found nothing. Just a bunch of wreckage pumping iron. Police searched the place but found no trace of Ryan or the mysterious steroid they appeared to be using. Five months passed. I didn't see or speak to Ryan once during that time. I was convinced he was terribly injured, or in hospital, or worse. Imagine my surprise then when I ran into him one night on a crowded tube platform while awaiting the next northbound train. I couldn't believe my eyes. It was Ryan, all right, and in one piece. Ryan... Mate, what happened to you? What do you mean? I've never felt better. Where have you been? Everyone's looking for you. Everyone misses you. No, they don't. Not stupid little wasp. Not pointless, annoying wasp. Please, Ryan, I thought we got past this. No one thinks you're... Save it. I don't need your apologies. Not anymore. I've got a way to prove it. Prove what? Prove I'm not pointless. The northbound train's lights shone down the platform as it approached the station. For the love of... Ryan! No one ever said... He raised a brown, solid-looking hand and shushed me. Shh! As I said, I'll prove it. Ryan, please! But he only grinned widely again before turning towards the train and charging. 
and he jumped straight in front of it. I was back on my granddad's lawn again, that same sound, that same thick, powerful crack a speeding vehicle makes as it plows into a block of dense wood. In an instant, what had once been Ryan became a shower of splinters and yellow powder. I choked and gasped as the substance filled the air. Commuters standing nearby started screaming, then fell to their knees, coughing and heaving as they too tried desperately to shield themselves from the debris. It was no use. I cradled my head in my hands and felt a shower of powder fall from my hair. I scrubbed furiously in my efforts to dislodge it and ended up with lungs full of whatever it was. It clung to my tongue with a sour sting. That was three weeks ago. Since the day Ryan leapt to his death, others have followed suit, always jumping into the path of moving trains, always on crowded platforms, always followed by the same shower of mysterious yellow dust. Despite the alarming increase in suicides, there's been no official explanation as to why this is happening. Every day there are reports of more jumpers, in more cities. Meanwhile, I've noticed the local membership of Meats has tripled, and it keeps growing. <laughs> and I don't even lift. But everyone keeps complimenting me, telling me how ripped I'm getting. Well, kiddies, when someone develops a chemical dependency, it can be so devastating for their relationships. Especially when that someone becomes more chemical than dependent. After one final message, it will be time for our announcements, when we may read your comment from iTunes and make you part of our show. First off, a message for the authors in our audience. If you like high-quality, professional, simply scary style audio production of your work, suitable for Audible and other audiobook sites without breaking your bank, send us a message to contact at simplyscarypodcast.com to set up a free consultation. You'll be glad you did. And if you're a writer and would like to see your story featured on the Simply Scary Podcast, visit simplyscarypodcast.com forward slash submit a story and we'll see if your tales can keep our audience up all night. Become a patron today and you can help the Simply Scary Podcast and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights produce more spine-tingling episodes of this show and more of our one-of-a-kind audio experiences. You will also get access to our original programming in the highest quality possible downloads, plus unreal, unreleased goodies like original music, films, and much, much more. 
visit chillingtalesfordarknights.com forward slash tour to support this program and help us keep creating the content you deserve. In the coming weeks, the Simply Scary Podcast and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights will be embarking on an exciting new project. Full animation adaptations of our frightening performances. With artist David Romero providing the nightmarish artwork, we'll be taking our videos to a whole new level. If you haven't already, click the subscribe button below to keep your eyes and ears peeled for the beginning of our Kickstarter campaign where we'll be offering many fabulous rewards for your support. And now, the piece de resistance. The moment you have all been waiting for. Our tradition of reading the iTunes review. And it is the season for tradition, is it not? Bloody or jingly, depending on your preference. Uh, but anyway, this episode's winner is Cat Be Good. Cat Be Good writes, Love this podcast. Look forward to each episode. Thank you so much for all your constructive and encouraging reviews, listeners. Cat Be Good, we need you to send a screenshot of your iTunes profile page with your review pictured to contact at simplyscarypodcast.com to claim your supernatural surprise gift. And for all the other listeners who take the time to leave us a review on iTunes, we'll get to you sooner or later. This is GM Danielson saying au revoir, thanking you for joining us for this episode. But do not fret, listeners. If you haven't shed any blood yet, don't worry. We'll be back for next Thursday's episode to continue the bloodletting. And remember, listeners, don't feel badly for those who have passed on. They may have escaped the coming doom. That could soon make us envy them. We will see you next time when we show you there is nothing simple about being scared. Unless, of course, it is the Simply Scary Podcast. This is executive producer Jesse Cornett. If you like what you hear, be sure to check out more from these authors at simplyscarypodcast.com. There you can find all information regarding the show and the stories appearing here in our podcast. The Simply Scary Podcast is a production of Chilling Entertainment. The showcase is written by Jesse Cornett and Dustin Kosky and produced by Jesse Cornett. The host of the Simply Scary Podcast is GM Danielson. Original music during the show by Jesse Cornett. This broadcast was directed and created by Craig Groshek. Be sure to look for the Simply Scary Podcast on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star review. Comments or questions? Email us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and check our website for more information. While you're there, consider clicking on the patrons link at the top of the page to help support our show. Copyright Chilling Entertainment LLC 2016. Thanks for listening. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs 
or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today, or visit Angie dot com. That's A N G I dot com.